continue my series from Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, we've been doing this series on the uh, season to build. And as you know, we've been collecting pledges, building funds. And come September, uh, we will only be using half of the church. The other side will be completely uh, out of bound for at least 10 months. Uh, and so this is an appropriate time to do a, a sermon from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we are entering to the second half of the book of Nehemiah, which is chapter 8 to 13. The first half of the book was about rebuilding the wall. But the second half will be rebuilding the people. The first half is about construction, and the second half is instruction. The first half was about reconstructing the city's main defense, but the second half will be revitalizing a city's spiritual community. Uh, reforming a community back to God is a lot more important than restoring its wall. I mean, what's the purpose of a nice, beautiful church, but inside is dead? The people inside the church is dead. What's the purpose of a nice few million dollars house when the dwellers inside always fight and quarrel and uh, no life at all? We all know that. Uh, it says... I came across this track many years ago. Say, what money can buy? Say, money can buy you a bed, but not sleep. Uh, money can buy you a computer, but not brain. Money can buy you food, but not appetite. Money can buy you finery, but not beauty. Money can buy you a house, but not a home. Money can buy you medicine but not health. Money can buy you luxuries, but not culture. Money can buy you amusement, but not happiness. It can buy you acquaintance, but not friends. It can buy you sex, but not love. What money can buy, Jesus can give it to you for free. And after all, Money is severely, the word is severely overrated to bring happiness. Severely overrated in bringing happiness. And so here, uh, it's all about inside of us, internal. Uh, Flannery O'Connor say, when you come, where you come from is gone. Where you thought you were going to was never there. And where you are is no good unless you can get away from it. But where is there a place for you to be? No place. Nothing outside you can give you any place. In yourself right now is all the place you've got. Someone said, if you want to change your life, change the way you think. You can run here, run to this country, that country. It's not going to change your life. It's inside of us. They will affect the way we view our lives. And so, there come a point of time in our lives, there must be some spiritual renewal inside of us. Uh, some of us have been a Christian for many years. Yesterday, I had the opportunity of spending some time with San and Elena. Uh, San is the one that played bass. That's not if you didn't observe. I don't know whether you're observant or not. I'm always very observant of the people. Uh, He's the one that played the bass guitar. Yesterday, we spent about two hours together walking through the Christian faith, and I prayed with him, 
and you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and maybe not the coming baptism, sometime the next one, uh, we will baptize him, and he will come and give you a testimony. Some of us, we have been Christian brand new, and some of us have been Christian for many, many years, 50 years, 60 years, or you can't even remember how many years. It has been said that when, just like in any job, you always go through different seasons. If you talk to a new doctor, or a doctor has been around for 50 years or 40 years, they approach things differently, or an accountant, or an engineer. Uh, and Christian is the same. Our Christian life, our Christian faith, our development is different. We go through different seasons, different stages. It has been said that there are four stages of faith development. It says that the first stage is called simplicity. When you first become Christian, all your motive is about what is right, what is wrong, because you need black and white to, to know how to move around or work, work or as a doctor or an engineer. When you're brand new, you need black and white. So your main concern is right or wrong. So the first stage is simplicity. And the second stage you go through what they call complexity. You begin to want to live up to your potential. You want to achieve goals. You want to be effective. You want to use your gifts to serve God. And you go through this period of complexity, of advancing. Just like any career, you do go through that phase as well. And then from simplicity to complexity. And then the third stage that you go through is what they call perplexity. After all, a period of time, you became a little bit disillusioned. You become a bit disappointed with many things that you know. It doesn't seem quite right. You, know, you go through this period of perplexity, and then your motive now is you're becoming more authentic. You're becoming more honest. You become more real as a person, as a Christian. And then they say that you'll go through a fourth stage, the final stage, which is called humility. Well, you've been through life and all that kind of Christian faith and you've been through it all and then your conclusion is you, bet, you make the best of every opportunity you serve, you contribute, you make a difference. So whichever stages that you may be at that you probably will go through in life as a Christian, uh, spiritual renewal is necessary. At different times, you need to rededicate your life to the Lord once again. Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's a Polish-born American rabbi and probably one of the leading Jewish theologians and Jewish philosophers of the 20th century. Brilliant mind. This is what he says. He said, when, when faith is completely replaced by creed, when your faith is replaced by creed, when your worship is replaced by discipline, when love is replaced by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. And so spiritual renewal, it is necessary as you grow in your faith. And so here, Nehemiah was very mindful of that while he concentrated on building, 52 days, building the wall to protect the people. But that's not the end in itself. There's only a means to see what is going to happen inside the wall. And so now he shifts gear from concentration of building the, pe uh, the wall, he shifts now to building the people. He moved away from construction now to instruction. 
from rebuilding to revitalizing the people. And so here, as I look at Nehemiah chapter 8, it gives us four steps. Four points here on spiritual renewal. How do you go about renewing yourself spiritually? And I think chapter 8 in Nehemiah gives us some tips here. The first step to spiritual renewal is, so four steps to spiritual renewal, the first step to spiritual renewal, I believe, is a growing appetite for the Word of God. Spiritual renewal begins with an appetite. If you have no appetite for any physical food today, it symbolizes that you are not well. You are sick. Loss of appetite is always the first sign that you're not well. You always used to like to eat, suddenly you don't like to eat. And so the first step to spiritual renewal is a growing appetite for the Word of God. If you have no desire for the Word of God, then you're backsliding. Verse 1 to 8 tells us this. I miss out the first part of verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together. So after now rebuilding, setting up the team for worship and all that, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. The book of the law of Moses is the first five books in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is known as Pentateuch, the five books. So they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Interestingly, it was the people that asked Ezra to bring out, not Ezra, the one that cajoled them. So you can see that there is this hunger. They have no God's word for so long. Now is the time for them. And so they asked Ezra, come on, bring out the law of the Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Bring it out. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, which is about six to seven hours. As he faced the square before the water gate, no preaching, no explanation, no illustration, no jokes, nothing. Just only purely reading for six to seven hours from daybreak to noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the man, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood fast forward. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. So guess what? Six to seven hours of reading, the people were standing up. How do you like standing up listening to my sermons? But the six to seven hours they stood up listening to just the word being read. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, 
Then, then they bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's, it's an amazing posture, isn't it? When you see even Muslim bow down their head into the ground in prostrate worshiping the Lord. There's something very moving about bowing down to worship, which is for some strange reason is it is never part of Christian tradition. But I do believe that sometimes posture does affect your mind. Try kneeling down and pray and try lying on in bed to pray. See whether or not you make a difference. But when you bow down to pray, your mindset is focused. When you lie down, you know what will happen? Tomorrow morning you will say Amen. There's a difference. And then they bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levite, da 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 the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Go back and read through and you realize that how many times the word understood appeared. Was being read. Spiritual renewal began with a growing appetite for the Word of God. There was, there was a story is told of an Indian man writing his friend overseas about the revival that was taking that was going on in his in his village. But his English was very limited. So when he wrote to his friend, what he meant to write was, We are having a revival here. But he doesn't know how to spell revival. And so he wrote, we are having a re-Bible here. Re-Bible, not revival. And what a perfect slip of the pen. A revival always happens when we are re-Bibled. When there is a healthy appreciation, hungry appetite for God's Word. And as, you read, and as, as I just read through to you, the people were enthusiastic, the people were attentive, the people were responsive, the people were submissive. And sometimes in this modern world, we are distracted by so many things. Uh, this poem was written uh, many years ago. It probably need update, probably new technology now comes in, probably needs some updating. It's called Jesus Used a Modem at the Sermon on the Mount. This po the poem said, did Jesus use a modem at the Sermon on the Mount? Did he ever try a broadcast fax to send his message out? Did the disciples carry beepers as they went about their route? Did Jesus use a modem at the Sermon on the Mount? Did Paul use a laptop with lots of RAM and ROM? Were his letters posted on a BBS at paul.rom.com? Did a man from Macedonia send an email saying, Come, did Paul use a laptop with lots of RAM and ROM? Did Moses use a joystick at the parting of the sea? and a satellite GPS to show him where to be? Did he, write on the law of the, did he write the law on tablets or are they really on CD? Did Moses use a joystick at the parting of the sea? Did Jesus die for us one day upon a tree or was it just a hologram or technical wizardry? Can you download the live action video clip to play on your PC? Did Jesus die, really die for us one day upon a tree? Have the wonders of this modern age made you question what is true? How a single man in a simple time could offer life anew. How a sinless man, a cruel death, than a glorious life again could offer more to a desperate world than the inventions of man. If in your life, the voice of God is sometimes hard to hear. 
with other voices calling his doesn't touch your ear. Then set aside your laptop and modem and all your fancy gear and open your Bible, open your heart and let your father draw you near. The word of God, hungry for God's word, is the beginning of spiritual renewal. Charles Goshen in his book, Loving God, says, the Bible, ban, burn, beloved, more widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it. Dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who read it. Yet soldiers carry it into battle, believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints. Pieced together, scraps of scripture have converted whole villages of pagan Indians. Yearly, the Bible outsells every bestseller. 500 million copies were published last year alone. Portions have been translated into more than 2,000 languages and even carried to the moon. Literally, classics endures the centuries. Philosophers mold the thoughts of generations unborn. Modern media shape current culture. And yet nothing has affected the rise and fall of civilization, the character of cultures, the structure of government, and the love on the inhabitants of this planet as profoundly as the words of the Bible. Spiritual renewal begins with a healthy appetite for God's word. And the people have that. And, Paul ne and Nehemiah knew that. That's the first thing they need to do. Second, second uh, uh, thing that happened for spiritual renewal is a glorifying adoration for the God of the word. As you begin to immerse yourself in the word of God, your understanding of this God will begin to grow and grow and grow and grow. Your God in your mind becomes so huge that your finite mind begins to not able to contain it. As you begin to allow God's word to immerse you, you will have a big image of this God that you worship. Look at what Ezra did. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. There is no renewal or revival if you have a little God, a puny God who can be coerced and bribed, a petty God who, like some divine genie, exists to do your will and fulfill your every wish, a weak God who can barely keep up with your own creation. The Christian God that you worship is huge. Your finite mind cannot contain this God. And as you immerse yourself into the Word of God, the God that you worship becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And your life will become more confident in trusting this God, this sovereign God who is in control of everything. Too many Christians have too small view of who God is. We think we can manipulate God and control God. But this God that you worship is greater, 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 greater than your this little 
finite mind can ever comprehend Him. Why do you want a, a God that you can comprehend anyway? Isn't He, isn't your mind greater than this God if your mind can completely comprehend Him? Isaiah chapter 40. There is a verse there in Isaiah 40 that is a very famous verse. Uh, if, you may not know this verse, but if I were to read out the words, you will know. You know what's the verse? Anybody want to guess? Isaiah 40, a famous verse. Those who wait upon the Lord, what happened? Shall renew their strength. And they will run and not grow weary. They will, they will not be faint. They will soar like an eagle. Yeah? But did you know that the verse comes out from meditation of the greatness of God? And because this God is so great, and therefore I can wait upon the Lord. Let me show you. Let me show you in Isaiah 40. I just cut a few verses here and there, but you go home and read Isaiah 40. See whether or not your, your mind will be exploded by the description of this God. He says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and He rules with a mighty arm. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? or with the breath of his hand mark off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way anyway? Who was it that taught him knowledge? or showed him the path of understanding. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales, so light. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Just imagine the imagery. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? And then I skip, okay? 1920, talk about these people trying to create idols, image to describe God. Verse 22, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spread them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Where is Adav Hiller? Where is Joseph Stalin? Mao Zedong? Pinochet? You name it. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground. What will happen? Then he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them like a child. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the starry host one by one calls for each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Then here comes the verse that we are familiar with. Do you not know? Have you not heard? This God that you worship is an everlasting God. 
He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 40. As we begin to immerse yourself in God's word, you're beginning to see that this God you worship is such a huge God. He's a sovereign God. He is in control of everything. And therefore, you can come to Him. Your strength can be renewed. When you are down, you are discouraged, you are flat, you go to Him. He's in charge. Not you. Don't worry. Don't panic. He's in charge. He's in control. There's no need to worry. He's in charge. And as you begin to have this healthy appetite of His Word, your image of Him begins to grow. Spiritual renewal begins to take place. And then the third point comes in. You begin to have a great sense of the awareness of who you are. A grieving awareness of sin. When you begin to focus more on the purity of God, you begin to realize that you become more smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. People who don't believe in sin are people who, who, be, who don't have a high standard of what good and bad and purity is. You may play very well tennis. If, you are going to, if I'm going to ask Roger Federer stand beside you or, or Rafael Nadal or Djokovic or whoever your player may be, and you begin to pale in smaller and smaller and smaller. Who are you comparing yourself with is going to be obvious to you. If you think you are rich, who are you comparing yourself with? If you think you are poor, who are you comparing yourself with? Is it the benchmark that you are comparing with that you are deriving an answer? And so as the person begins to meditate and focus on God who is full of purity and holiness, you're beginning to have aware of your sins. And then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep because they have been mourning as they begin to read the law they begin to see that how much they have sinned against God they begin to mourn and weep and this is the day they say don't do that for all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law you know as you begin to focus on God you begin to realize how small you are like Isaiah chapter 6 if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, I look upon God high and lifted up. And then later on he said, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Or Luke chapter 5, Peter went out fishing, you know, couldn't catch any fish. And Jesus said, Throw your net on this side. And then he threw the nets on this side and catch so much fish. And then what did Peter do? Oh, great. What did he do? He quickly dashed and bowed down. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Because he recognized who God is suddenly. And so when we recognize God, we then come before God with humility. Like the famous hymn that said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, 
Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. Obviously, this congregation don't really know this hymn. But the first service, they all can fill me in without me having to read, finish it. Psalms 51, what does the God desire from us? What? Money? What does God desire from you? The sacrifices of God is a what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. God desires us to be broken. That's all. He doesn't want your million of dollars. We will never know how great a Savior Jesus is until we see the greatness of our sin. This is called brokenness. You're completely broken. Spiritual revival, spiritual renewal comes through brokenness. When you are broken, it is a shattering of your self-will. It is a stripping of every self-reliance. It is a softening of the soil of your heart. This is what the Beatitudes say. Beatitudes Brokenness means blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what's the meaning of poor in spirit? It's not to be poor, you know, purposely don't have money, you know. It's a sense of powerlessness. It's a sense that spiritually you're bankrupt. You cannot make it on your own. It's a sense of helplessness before God. There's a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It's a sense that if there is to be joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. God does not save us because of what we have done. Please get that, delete it out of your mind. God does not save us because of what we have done. Get it of it. If you focus on that, self-righteousness will come in. And you will be, become like a Pharisee. And then harshest words in the Bible are reserved for you. God does, not have to, God does not save us because of what we have done. Only a puny God could be bought with money. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a temperamental God could be satisfied by sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidders. And only a great God does for His children what they can't do for themselves. Remember the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? This may be true before your exams, alright? But it is not true if you apply it to salvation. It is incorrect. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Poor in spirit. Your cupboards are bare. Your pockets are empty. Your options are gone. You don't brag, you beg. There was a story about Chris, uh, businessman Keith Miller in America. He was a Christian, but he arranged to meet a Roman Catholic priest hundreds of kilometers away from his home to hear his confession. Because he has seen so much, he wants someone to hear. He can't tell everybody. And he made a long list, and he certainly can't tell the pastor or the church leaders Otherwise, all the whole church will know. So he made a long list of the character flaws. He made an appointment with a Catholic priest many, many hundreds of miles away. And he just wanted to read out all the sins that he has committed to this priest. 
And then he traveled to the priest's home city, sat in front of him, and he read off the entire list without even looking up at the priest. And at the end, Keith Miller had his head in his hands. Like that. After he read all this, waiting for a response from the priest. But there was silence. He kept waiting for the blow to fall, but nothing. And he finally forced himself to raise his head. And then he saw the priest crying. And then the priest said, My God, Keith, that's my list too. I think this priest is very honest. In facing his poverty of spirit, he found not only God's grace, but also fellowship of the poor in spirit. Strangely, wonderfully, it's when we face our poverty of spirit, our weakness, our character flaws, our sins, our selfishness, our envy, our pride, all the fears, struggles, and doubts. Jesus said, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. There was a story by Brendan Manning. He wrote a book called Ragamuffin Gospel. In it, he says this. He says it's quite true. He said, he said there was a story about a 92-year-old priest who was venerated by everybody in town for his holiness. He, but he was also a member of the Rotary Club. Every time they have a meeting, he would be there, always on time, and always seated at his favorite spot in the corner of the room. And one day, the priest disappeared. It was as if he had, he had vanished into thin air. And the townsfolk searched all over and could find no trace of him. But the following month, when the Rotary Club met again, he was there as usual, sitting in his corner. So everybody said, Father, we miss you. Where have you been? Well, Father said, I just served a 30-day sentence in prison. Huh? In prison? You couldn't hurt a fly. What happened? Well, it's a long story, is it? But briefly, is this? This is what happened. I bought myself a train ticket to go into the city. I was standing on the platform waiting for the train to arrive when this stunningly beautiful girl appears on the arm of a policeman. She looked at me and turned to the policeman and said, He did it. I'm certain he's the one who did it. And the father said, well, to tell you the truth, I was so flattered that I pleaded guilty. You know, there's a, there's a touch of vanity in the holiest men and women because they see no reason to deny it. And they know that reality bites back if it isn't respected. And when I'm honest enough, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. So are you. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad and about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting. I'm also suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle says that I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. 
To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark side. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. Or Thomas Merton said, A saint is not someone who is good. A saint is someone who experiences the goodness of God. And so here, when you immerse yourself in God's word, when you form yourself a gigantic understanding of how huge and who this God is, you begin to become smaller and smaller and you sense yourself becoming broken. There's this overwhelming of sin in you, not just only the external, but inside of you. You become broken before God. You long for His mercy and grace. And the real person begins to emerge. There's spiritual renewal begins to happen in you. And lastly, there's one more point that I want to give to you before I close. Uh, Kate, can you help me? Uh, it doesn't seem to be able to turn. The last point I want to give to you is a greater, when that happens, then there was a greater attitude of joyful obedience. That whatever you do for the Lord is no longer a chore. Many Christians do things for the Lord out of chore. Whether they have to cook, whether they have to serve, whether they have to do this, they see everything they do out of chore sometimes. Not as a joyful attitude in serving the Lord. But when the spiritual renewal happens, every opportunity to serve the Lord is a joy. It's a privilege. It is never a chore. I remember when I first became Christian, I was so excited. I was just incredible. I could literally live in the church. Anything the church activity, I'll be there as a young man. Single-handedly, three of us, myself, my brother, and one of my friends would let me to the Lord and bring me to church. Three of us, at the 17 years old, we watched the entire church auditorium. And those days are not chairs, are those heavy pews. We carried like 50 pews out to the car park, watched the entire church. That is how much energy, how much excitement I have that whatever I do is like a joyful obedience, like a joy in me wanting to serve the Lord and not a chore. And when spiritual renewal happens, there will be this attitude of joyful obedience, doing things for the Lord out of joy. And as I read through these eight verses to you, pick up three points. Pick up three points here of this joyful obedience. What does it mean to be joyful obedient? Let me read to you first. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink. Go. And, some, and send, please send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you don't know where this verse comes from, it's Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Immediately, what does it mean to be joyful, obedient? You know that your sins are forgiven. You receive God's forgiveness. Go, don't mourn anymore. Do not grieve. You are grieving because you know the of sin. But don't grieve anymore. Go, the joy of the Lord be your strength. Your sins are forgiven. You receive God's 
forgiveness. Many Christians do not believe that their sins are forgiven. They know it, but they don't believe it. Exile is over. God's faithfulness re remains. Go. Your sins are forgiven. Psalms 103 says, As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. D.R. Moody says, God has cast our confession into the depths of the sea. And he's even put a no fishing sign over the spot. You don't revisit again. Martin Luther used to struggle so much with his sins. And once he saw a book where all oh, he dreamed, he dreamed, he, he struggled so much, he dreamed. He dreamed that he saw a book where all his sins were written there. And in a dream, the devil spoke to Martin Luther. Martin, Martin, here is one of your sins. Here is another pointing to the writing in the book. And then Luther said to the devil, take a pen and write the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sins. The joyful obedience is to believe that God forgives your sin. Receive His forgiveness. Yes, you may still sin. But you won't lose your salvation because you sinned. You break the relationship with God. You're not going to hell because you sinned. When you believe in Jesus, that has been taken away. Jesus forgives your past sin, your present sin, and your future sins as well. And when you sin now as a Christian, you break the relationship with God. You can come back to Him. You can renew again. You won't lose your salvation. You won't go to hell because you sin. Receive God's forgiveness. And secondly, out of the joyful obedience, it also says this. Interestingly, he said, uh, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. A heart for others. When renewal happens, you will always have a heart for others. The mind, do you know that your mind grows by taking in? Yeah, you expand your head knowledge by putting in things, right? So your mind expands, your mind grows by taking in. But your heart grows by giving out. Your mind grows by taking in. Your heart only grows by giving out. By giving time to people, by serving people, by loving people. That is where your heart will be stretched and grow. True revivals always result in a heart for others. There's a desire to be a channel of blessings and not a reservoir. You know you need renewal and revival when you are not thinking about others around you or your heart becomes so self-absorbed that you always think, how does this benefit me? And how many people do that? How many people only put in the, oh, how what does it benefit me? Or oh, can I plow into this friendship? What does it benefit me first? If it doesn't benefit me, I'm not going to do that. You desperately need that kind of renewal if your attitude is like that. True revival always results in the hearts for others. Renewer. And he might say, go, know that your sins is forgiven. Take this food to those even who have nothing prepared for it. Never mind. Give it to them. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmly 
calm all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day, do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portion of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They know that their sins have been forgiven. They know now that they live obediently for the Lord. And one more thing here you must pick up and then I'll close. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families along with the priests and the Levites, they gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the Lord. Almost like a pre-study, you know, the Bible study with these leaders so that they can bring it to them. And then you know what they did? When they come together, they found something as they begin to study. They discovered written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, which in uh, Exodus is the festival of the booth. Remember? During the Exodus time, they live in tents. So as they study, oh, they are supposed to do that. And what did they do? They immediately go and do that. And they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches. They say, okay, let's go and do it. Since the word of God tells us to do this, let's do it. Go out and the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtle, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. Let's do it. Don't just really know it. Huh? Let's do it, he said. So the people went out, brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and in the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelter and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very, very great because they put God's word into practice. Yeah, they read something about it. Okay, let's do it. Immediately, they act it out. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read up from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So growing obedience to God is believing and receiving God's forgiveness. You have a heart for others, and then you're choosing to apply God's word. So those are the four steps toward your own personal spiritual renewal. There's a growing appetite for the Word of God. And as you begin to immerse yourself in that, you will have a glorifying adoration for the God of the Word. And as you begin to meditate on this huge God, you begin to realize the grieving awareness of your own sin. You cry out to God for mercy. You're broken before Him. God forgives you. God says, well, yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm giving it to you. It's nothing of your own effort. And then when you after go through the process, you begin to have a greater attitude of joyful obedience. Whatever now I do for the Lord is joy. It's not a burden. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. It's a joyful attitude in serving the Lord. Spiritual renewal. I think we all need that. At various times in our Christian journey, we need to renew ourselves. Let me close with this. When I first became Christian, one Christian singer impacted me with a song. His name is Keith Green. Some of us know Keith Green. When I heard of his song in 1984, when I first became Christian, he has already died in 1982 at the age of 28, plane crash. 
but he is an amazing electrifying individual that has rocked the Christian world in 1982 to 84 within the short span of the two years literally if you go to all the mission agency the highest intake that they record OM YWAM every is always between 1982 to 84 because of Cave Green music electrifying and let me read to you one of the songs that he wrote. The title of the song is a very short song. It's called My Eyes Are Dry. If you have a chance, go home, go to YouTube, type in Keith Green, My Eyes Are Dry. It's a beautiful renewal song that I sing sometimes. Let me read to you the words. It says, My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hot and my prayers are cold and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me but what can be done for an old heart like mine oh Lord please soften it up with your oil and your wine the oil is you your spirit of love Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. May this be our prayer as we come to the Lord for spiritual renewal, as we grow in a joyful obedience to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Occasionally in our lives, Christian life, we need to rededicate our life to you. Thank you, Lord. You are a wonderful, loving God. You are greater than our finite mind can ever imagine or comprehend. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you that you always welcome us back. Thank you, Lord. Today we come back to you. We renew ourselves to you. Yes, Lord, some of us, our eyes are dry. Our faith is all. Our heart has become so hard. Our prayers are cold. And we know what we ought to be. Alive to you and dead to me. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us in our own little way, in our own quiet, gentle way. Speak to us that we can continue to grow and in you and to be a blessing to everyone. Thank you, Lord. As we sing this chorus, this song once again, uh, renew us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this old chorus song many years ago, Power of Your Love. It's a song that we can sing as a prayer to the Lord. Lord, I come to you
love you. We worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Now may the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional and unfailing love of God, and the empowering presence and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.